of two authors. <laughs> okay, thanks for inviting me. It's really a pleasure to be here in Paris, uh, being part of a really stimulating workshop. Uh, the workshop is on statistically more learning. Learning in a general sense means learning from data. So that might have different objectives. Many focus on learning as a tool for prediction. Others are more interested in finding out uh, in discovering the relevant features in data. So hopefully, if you discover the uh, relevant features that might improve your prediction results, it doesn't always work out that way. But nevertheless, my focus uh, certainly is on the identification of relevant structures. And I will talk most of the time about categorical data. Maybe if there is some time left, I will talk later about other things too. But categorical data, uh, there's a lot of literature uh, about categorical regression with ordinary response variables. What McCulloch did quite some time ago, but it's still going on. Uh, there's not so much, has not so been so much done uh, in the area where the predictors are categorical. So that's my main topic here. And <clears throat> okay. the framework I'm working in is we want to specify the mean, the value of a response variable given covariates. And in this setting where the mean is determined by a transformation function h, and in eta i, you have all your predictors. Uh, of course, you can do it the other way around, transform your uh, mean value, and you get the predictor on the right-hand side. It cannot always be done. What we saw yesterday in single index models, or sliced inverse regression, uh, this transformation function is not invertible because they don't, do not care for this uh, transformation function to be strictly monotone. So, but I think it's, m most of the time it makes uh, interpretation, and that's what I'm really interested in, uh, easier if you have a transformation function which uh, can be inverted. So you have a lot of uh, choices to make when you have a model like that, even when there's simple cross-sectional data. Uh, what is the appropriate link? Uh, often it is chosen simply by convenience, take the canonical link, but it might not be the best way to do it because it might influence uh, your parametric terms and the parameters. What most of the people are focusing on is how to specify your predictor. You can do it in a simple linear way, simple linear model. Uh, you can put in an additive term with unknown transformation functions. You can use some uh, varying coefficient terms where some other variables determine the effect of one variable. Uh, anyway, in particular, if, uh, if you have a lot of predictors, what you really is needed, selection of predictors, or with the complex modeling you want to fit, you need some regularization, meaning feature extraction, <coughs> and things like that. So, what happens in, for categorical predictors? Uh, you can, in your, your predictor can also include the set variable, might be some, uh, sm uh, some metric variable which uh, enters in a simply <coughs> unknown functional form. Uh, but what you, one is doing most of the time is uh, you specify it as a linear predictor with dummy variables. So, and your dummy variables, there are several coding schemes. You can use simple 0-1 coding uh, with a reference category. In this case, it's the last category, which is used as a reference. Or you use effect coding, which in effect uh, restricts your parameters such that they sum up to 0. That's what's usually done in analysis of variance. But what is happening is, for each categorical variable, you have k minus, with k categories, you have k minus one parameters to estimate. So if you have 10 categorical predictors uh, with six categories in each, so you have already 50 parameters to estimate. And that often causes problems. If you have a simple linear model, 
Most of the time you can estimate, but uh, the estimates will not be unique. If you have a binary response, then often the estimates won't exist because the parameters go uh, to infinity and then you're starting again your analysis. You're looking at your data, okay, should I collapse some categories, which ones, and try again. So that's really a problem if you have <coughs> uh, categorical data, you have too many parameters to estimate most of the time. A simple example of which I will use is the Munich rent data. Uh, Munich has 25 districts, and what you see here, uh, it's not so good to see, uh, is the mean rent in all of these districts. I don't know about Paris, but it should be pretty expensive here too. <laughs> then I can tell you Munich is a strong competitor. It's, it's really expensive in Munich, given the salary. So the dark side, it's really in the inner city. That's the most expensive part, and then you go out. So if you, of course, when you're looking at the monthly rent per square meter, you're including several other variables. Uh, decade of construction, floor space, and so on. But one effect is you want to evaluate which districts are really different, and what is the effect of the district on your uh, monthly rate per square meter. Good. For category predictors, you should distinguish at least two cases. Either you have nominal variables or you have ordinal variables. In nominal variables, uh, the category categories are simply labels. So a permutation of these labels should yield the same results. If you have an ordinal predictor, then if you get the same results for any permutation of the categories, then you have not used your ordinal scale. So that would not be the right thing to do. Uh, what one has instead is, what you want is palindromic invariance. So if you reverse the ordering of your categories, you should have the same. But that's the only transformation which is allowed. A palindrome usually, it is used in language. It's a word you can read forward and backward, and it means the same. So in English, rotator is a palindrome. In French, I don't know a lot of French. Ada. Rada, rada, right, or no, that's a very simple palindrome. So anyway, you want to get the same if you reorder just your uh, categories. Two questions are really of relevance. First, you want to know which of the predictors are really relevant in your data. And the other thing is, are really the categories? Do you have to distinguish between categories? Thinking of the Munich data, is it really the same? Are the districts the same with respect to the response variables, or are they really different? So you have two sorts of problems here. And of course, it's uh, relevant because you want simple models if you want interpretation. You want, don't want to fit a lot of noise because that makes interpretation always very, very hard. Let me start with ordinal predictors. Uh, you have a linear term, and you use the category level 0 up till k, and 0 is the reference category. So uh, you set the parameter on the reference category simply to 0. That's easy, of course. OK, <coughs> so <coughs> if you have ordinal predictors, uh, one device is you want your parameters because you have neighborhood information, you have a, some sort of distance, uh, you want to vary them, uh, you want them to vary smoothly across these categories. That's one concept here. What are social scientists, econometricians, and many of them, most of the time, what they are doing is fitting simply a linear model. Because these are numbers, so why not fit the linear models? So the sensitivity to uh, scale levels, that's more a thing that psychologists do a lot of that thing. They have a lot of measurement problems. They want to know what is intelligence, so they have to know what is a scale. 
but for most of the people, also mathematicians, are not very sensible to scale levels. Uh, when you fit a model, that's quite different. You have a binary response. Either you buy a cheap product, a cheap coffee, or a really branded product. So, and these are three uh, cat, uh, ordinal category predictors, age group, social class, and monthly income. This is a little bit messy. Uh, for social class, of course, the probability of buying a really branded product goes down across these social classes. Uh, but for monthly income, it's very strange. If you fit a straight line, it's just a small increase what you get uh, across these categories. But if you look at the uh, simple estimates without any restriction, you see it seems to work like that. You have a, a lower level for the lower income groups and a higher level for the higher income groups. But there's some increase here, but not this linear straight line. So that's definitely not the best thing to do. So how do we get smooth parameters across categories? What we can do is penalize log likelihood. So you use a penalized log likelihood. Okay, this is a least squares estimate uh, for the simple linear model, but it's the same for all of them. And you put a uh, penalty term in it. And the penalty term is structured like that, uh, that you penalize the difference between adjacent categories. So that's simply what is going on here. The difference between adjacent categories, and you can put that in a matrix which produces your differences, and the nice thing is your <coughs> term is a quadratic form. What you get in the end is a quadratic form as a penalty term that makes things easier. For the linear model, you get an explicit, explicit estimator. Of course, with this matrix omega in it and lambda is the smoothing parameter. If it's zero, you get the old maximum likelihood estimates. If you use it in a GLM framework, of course you have to do an iterative estimation procedure, but it works the same way. Bias variance, you can look at the bias. In this case, you can write it explicitly down. Uh, the bias depends on the true parameter beta, while the variance does not depend on beta. But to look at what is happening, uh, this is just some simulation for two uh, ordinal predictors. In one case, it's an increase in that it's an increase and then a decrease. What you get for the squared, for the mean squared error, if you use the simple maximum likelihood estimate is a straight line. Uh, if you use a penalized estimator, then here you see the penalization uh, parameter. Of course, if it's zero, you get the same value, but, they, uh, but with increasing bias and decreasing variance, the mean squared error is like that. So you have a lot to win uh, over a wide range of lambda parameters. This is two, and it really goes down to about 0.5. Same in this case. So there's really the mean squared errors are definitely better if you use uh, some smoothing in that device. Okay, another example, that's a problem, chronic widespread pain. In Munich, uh, there's a, a group at the medical department which is working on these uh, chronic widespread pains. It's not so clear what this concept really means, and in cooperation with the uh, World Health, Health Organization, they want to evaluate what is happening here. Um, and in particular, what is considered is the International Classification of Functioning, this ECF. This ECF is 1,400 ordinarily scaled factors, what you have to consider. So these scaled factors, uh, they vary. Uh, they have nine to five categories, something like that. That's definitely too much. Um, the scale factors are like this. Uh, you have, in walking, you have no difficulty up to complete difficulty. What they, in a first step, selected 
is 67 variables. They call it categories, but it's rather confusing to call it categories because for a statistician, it's a variable. But that's still a lot to fit <coughs> for data. And of course, nobody wants to uh, answer 1,400 questions. That's out of the question. But in particular in social science, you have a lot of questionnaires and you have uh, a lot of categorical data with an ordering in it. So just some examples here. Uh, what we did is this 67 variables, that's the core set of uh, functioning, and it's what is the effect on some quality of life score. Because this is really uh, the physician uh, does the evaluation here and the subjective quality of life, how does it depend here? Uh, we are looking at just two factors, walking, of course, quality of, wrong. Quality of life is decreasing if you have difficulty with uh, walking. And this is just for different smoothing parameters. Okay, because zero is your reference category. If you're really strongly uh, penalizing your fit, then you get a straight line, but otherwise you get the, all these things. Uh, the other, factor is social norms. That's scaled in a way like that. Um, minus four means uh, social norms in general uh, makes life harder for you or social norms makes life easier for you. So it was a little bit puzzling because uh, if you think of the response is a, a quality of life score, uh, people which think it makes life easier or life uh, harder, have lower quality of life scores than if they think social norms are, have no effect. So they are not so important for me. That was a strange result, but nevertheless. Uh, what we did now is just smoothing across ordered categories. That was not selection of variables until now. How can we uh, find selection of variables there's some, something around the group lasso, Johan and Lin, and the Zurich people did a lot of asymptotics for it, when I remember right. Uh, the group lasso uses a penalty term like that, and they are using the L2 norm. The DF is just uh, adapts for the number of parameters you have in it. And that works in a way that it enforces the selection. Beta J is just all the categories, all the parameters linked to uh, variable J. So they are selecting the whole para parameter or not. That enforces really selection of variables. In this form, uh, the group lasso is designed for nominal variables. Of course, it uses just nominal var variables. <coughs> uh, they have a nice package for it. If you have ordinal variables, you want to use the ordinal information in your data. But it's rather simply done. You have to transform your original uh, parameters. Uh, the beta parameters are transformed uh, by, it's actually the transform where you transform them in differences of adjacent categories. And that's done with this matrix U, which I have shown before. And then the penalty becomes, again, a rather simple term with the identity matrix in here. So you get, by transforming it uh, into differences, you get the usual lasso term. And the other thing is, of course, you have to transform also your design matrix. And if you look at, look at it more closely, the design matrix now uses simply uh, something like what is called split coring. So you have a split uh, at a category. You have one if you are above the category and zero below. It comes down to using uh, split coding for your variables. Of course, split coding makes only sense for categorical for ordinal variables. For nominal variables, you won't use a split because you have no uh, upper or lower level. And with, by transforming it in that way, you can use this, this simple. Uh, group lasso. And you, now you're enforcing selection 
on this factor level, but including your ordinal information. <coughs> uh, an alternative approach, how to <coughs> select variables and including your information uh, is by using bo the boosting approaches. Everybody knows about boosting approaches nowadays, I think. It was designed in the machine learning community. First, it was used to improve your uh, classification results by refitting your data in a sense that if all the observations which you have uh, have, you have classified wrongly, they get more higher weights in the next step and you do that several times. First I found it rather strange. So it, it looked like learning by outliers because you're really putting higher uh, weights on the parameters you have not fitted well. But nevertheless, it works out fine. It is, it, it's really an interesting device. Uh, and later it has been shown it's really some optimization procedure for specific uh, loss function. Uh, why it's interesting here is with this, uh, you can use it in the sense of blockwise boosting. Component-wise boosting in a simple form is uh, you are refitting just one of the parameters at one time. And in the simplest device, it's really fitting you the same model by uh, using your residuals in this previous, of the previous step. And slightly more generally, you can do it in the form of blockwise boosting. So refit just one variable with all of the parameters linked to these variables. You fit just these variables at a time and uh, update just one the variable which improves the fit maximally uh, in this step. Okay. Likely, likelihood boosting is certainly that w what one wants in this case. Uh, one can put it in different ways. I always prefer it like this. You have your simple model with a transformation function in it. In a first step, you fit a simple model, for example, only the intercept model. In the next step, you're fitting the model again, but now you have an offset in it. That means that's the predictor you have fitted in the previous step. And what you are fitting is that's defined by this term. Uh, that's the, the sort of predictor you are uh, fitting. It could be, in the simplest case, a simple linear one. Of course, in this fitting step, you can include a selection step. And if you have fitted that, then in the update step, of course, you're adapting your new uh, predictors and your gammas. Okay, in this framework, the simple predictor is a linear one. The linear uh, predictor, which includes only variable j, and you use penalized fitting. So you're fitting the generalized linear model, in this case, with only variable j in it. And, and that can be done by one-step Fisher scoring, where you, of course, have here the penalized Fisher matrix. That includes the smoothing parameter, because you want to have a smooth update, and you want a weak learner, so you, you don't want to fit in one step. And you use it just for this one variable. For linear models, it comes down to refitting residuals. And then in the fitting step is a selection step included uh, where you only update that variable which is in some sense optimal. For example, it minimizes the deviance or AIC, some information criteria. Okay, so that's simply an alternative uh, device to select ordinal variables. These are for variables from this ICF score sets. It's sensation of pain. Of course, if you have a lot of pain, uh, your quality of life decreases. What one sees is the red is boosting. Uh, the black one is <coughs> penalty approach. 
they are quite close in all of the cases. No wonder, of course, one can show that they should be quite close. But uh, just to look at it, how they work in practice, uh, you cannot distinguish very strongly between these two devices. Uh, if one looks at the predictors which are selected by this procedure, uh, blockwise boosting was a little bit more sparse. They selected from the 67 predictors only 18. In the group Lasso, uh, it was 30 predictors which were selected. So it, it reduced uh, the number of variables really to a smaller set. Okay. Now we, we are looking only at uh, selection of variables, but not at the selection of categories. So the next question is, how can we select categories, meaning uh, which categories are relevant, or could we collapse some of the categories? Uh, in, for ordered categories, what you are using uh, here is, instead of uh, the L2 norm, you use the lasso type norm, but now on the difference of categories <coughs> for uh, variable J. So this is the sum across all the variables, and this is the sum across all the parameters within this variable, and penalizing the difference between adjacent categories. Of course, that enforces that parameters are set equal, and that comes down to collapsing categories. You get some clustering in this sense. Uh, one thinks of fused lasso in this context. Fused lasso does a similar thing, uh, but they are, were using it for signals, because a signal also has a metric on it, so you can look at the differences between beaters, but it's some sort of, uh, it's, it's very similar to the la lasso. And one can show it's really the split coding what you are using here. In a slightly more general setting, uh, if one looks at these lasso type differences, uh, for ordered predictors it's the same, but now we have some weights in it. Uh, and for the nominal predictor, what one can do is you want to collapse. You have a lot of nominal categories, not ordered, and you want to collapse any two of them. So what you are considering is a term that includes all the pairs, that will happen more often, that includes all the pairs of parameters beta. And that enforces really collapsing them. It was really strange when uh, early in 2009 when we were working at, with this penalty and were about to finish our technical report we saw that Bondel and Reich did the same thing, but in a ANOVA framework. Okay, they were really focusing on ANOVA. We were focusing on uh, selection of categories and, cl clusteries and clustering. The weights, the weights uh, include two things. First, you have a weight on the observations because Different categories have different observations, but that's not the really influential thing. One can neglect that in a first step. The more interesting part is uh, the differences between, in this case, the least squares estimates. So you adapt your penalty by using least squares estimates or another estimate which is consistent, uh, and it shows up in the denominator. So. If the parameters are not, uh, if the difference is zero, what is happening here is uh, if you have uh, many observations, uh, the weight in the denominator uh, tends to get to zero. So you get a very, very high weight on this term. So in effect, if, if this is almost zero <coughs> in the denominator, you have to put these two parameters together because you get a very, very large weight on this term. Though so that really should be included. Um, okay. Uh, 
the adaptive just for illustration uh, that uh, in the ordered case where you look at the non-adaptive and the adaptive case and what one sees here it's scale like this lambda me uh, here you are at the ml estimator and here you are really shrinking very very strongly and here you see these classes of uh, together these were actually in the day uh, in the true structure not distinguished and they go together uh, if the shrinkage gets stronger but for the adaptive case this is much more stable across the smoothing parameters more important okay one can show some oracle properties uh, because you look at the the theta parameter is really the differences between all the betas and you look at the estimates you get if you know about the true which ones are really different and one can show that if the smoothing increases the lambda goes to infinity but not too uh, too fast then one can show that you get estimate then you are get normally distributed estimators and they have the same covariance matrix as if you have known which uh, differences are really relevant and in addition you get that you in the end for large n you're getting the right set of differences that's more asymptotics so one doesn't know how good it really uh, works in the finite case uh, some computational issues one can uh, use quadratic programming here what we were using is the loss algorithm because it was much faster it think one has to be a little bit cautious here you have all these differences of parameters this is the set of parameters you want to estimate, but uh, you have additional restrictions in the parameters because the first parameter, the difference uh, i to zero, is the original parameter beta e. So one has one more restriction in it because this theta i l is the same as theta i zero and theta l zero. So, uh, but what one can do is use the adaptive net penalty you have the a penalty term for this these differences in it but in addition uh, we use some regularization uh, to uh, which cares for this restriction which one has in it and this is as the first step it's rather artificial uh, but if you use a very very large gamma you enforce your parameters uh, to fulfill this restriction and that's what we are actually doing uh, fitting it for a very very large gamma this is that's just for fitting purposes uh, so in the end you are looking at the uh, lemurs of it so there is not much difference between an exact solution and an approximate solution so that worked quite fine um, Okay. The coefficient path. That was okay. Uh, for the Munich rent data, if you use that device, now you want clusters. What one sees is uh, the urban districts here. That's the inner city. That's the highest level. Each district has a lower level. Uh, rent per square meter and what one sees is really these districts they are not really different or also these districts and you're seeing how they are going together uh, if you increase your smoothing parameter that's the that's more or less a single one it's where the university is so that's a decent district it's a little bit cheaper but it's still a very good, nice district to live um, the year of construction, that's an ordinal one. Here, uh, districts are really nominal. Year of construction, uh, we have used ordered scales in decades, and it's really nice. You don't have to distinguish all of these decades. 
it comes down more to three to four uh, bundles of categories because this is fused, okay, 30s and 40s and the 90s, 19s, that's hardly to be distinguished, but also these three categories or these three categories have about the same effect. Okay, these are pretty close to zero, so that's more or less the mean level what is found here. For the data, okay, it reduces actually these 25 districts are reduced to 10 districts, which really have to distinguish uh, if you put several covariates in it, like floor space and things like that. Of course, it, it makes a difference if you put some other covariates in it or just collapsing tables. <clears throat> okay, uh, some numerical experiments. How well does this thing work? That's more or less a two cross two cross two device where you're varying uh, nominal and ordinal variables. Number of levels is four or eight and uh, the two dummy co coefficients are relevant or not. Here, here you have clusters or they are zero. And one wants to compare simple ordinary squares or the standard version or the adaptive version. So this is really in the finite case. And uh, what, we are, what we are looking at here is the adaptive version. That means you have the weights in it and with or without refitting. Refitting is, uh, means that if you have selected your categories, then you do one step of refitting, meaning one maximum likelihood estimator. Uh, the important thing is, can you improve by using uh, just uh, one step more? You can improve uh, upon your mean squared error, but the selection seems to be uh, already done. So it's really important here, uh, the selection of the smoothing parameter has to include the whole procedure, selection and refitting. Then, if you, you're looking at a, a good smoothing parameter, uh, that really includes the selection of variables. And what one gets is, okay, one wants to look at the mean squared errors and prediction accuracy uh, in a new data set. And what one is interested in is in false positive rates, false negative rates. They refer to two, thing, two things. False positive rates is a variable is not interesting, but you have selected it, or a difference is not relevant between categories and you have selected it. The same for the false negatives rates. <clears throat> Always referring to variable selection and clustering within variable selections. And if you look at the numerical experiments, okay, the mean squared error in prediction accuracy, uh, ordinarily squares is worse in both, for both measures. Uh, what is always better is this is the adaptive with the weights in it, this is the standard procedure, and this is adaptive with refitting, RF, and standard with refitting. So what one sees is, it's about the same here, the ordering, uh, the refitting uh, works better than the standard procedure, <coughs> and the adaptive is always slightly better, uh, yeah, the standard that the adaptive is always slightly better than the standard procedure. So it seems like this is the best thing to do, uh, to use your weights in it, be adaptive, and do some refitting. In both cases, it uh, is better. The real surprise was if you look at variable selection. The false positive rate, if you use maximum likelihood, of course, they're selecting all of them. Nothing is set to zero, though the forward positive rate is one. Uh, but refitting really improves the selection rate. So this is variable selection. This is a selection of categories within the variables. And that's really definitely much, much slower. So this is false positive rate that's almost not present in this case. 
but you get for adaptive with refitting for both measures you get a very very low rate so it, it really works uh, in this selection if you do some refitting but include uh, the selection of your smoothing parameter in it okay time is going on so yeah that was my main topic categorical data uh, just uh, a little bit on mixed models because uh, this is a data th set this is Tima data uh, and that's a small uh, city in Africa and what we are looking at is the weight of children across uh, the first year so this is in days and what one sees is a lot of heterogeneity in the data the uh, at birth the birth weight uh, is quite different for the children and also the increase is quite different here's a very very small increase almost no increase and here's a very strong increase so what you want is to model the heterogeneity in data one problem is you don't know how this growth curve is really uh, how does it look like because fitting a parametric model or a fixed function uh, is not the best device here because it could be different in this case how the growth rate uh, is going on so to account for the heterogeneity in data, uh, a mixed model is an interesting approach. Mixed models are usually used in the layered wear approach. So in the first stage, you're fitting, uh, you're assuming that your response depends on a term which includes fixed parameters and a term which includes, includes subject-specific parameters. So each uh, person is allowed to have one own parameter. In the simple, simplest case, here it comes down to just one parameter, just one, in, the intercept varies across children. But of course it can also include uh, the slope in a linear model. In the second st stage, you're assuming, because you have as many parameters as you have individuals, so you assume uh, some distribution for these subject-specific parameters, usually the normal distribution, but you can also use alternatives. Uh, you can give it a closed form. Uh, in a semi-parametric model, and that's, that is what you want, because you uh, don't know the underlying function. Uh, how weight increases across the first year. So what you're using here is not a linear term. You're using maybe some linear uh, term in it, but what you're using is an additive term. And these additive terms, what, what we use most of the time is regression splines. So the additive unknown term is a sum of known basis functions. So you have parametrized your model again. And what one can do then is, again, some sort of blockwise boosting with a smoothing parameter in it. And blockwise in that case means you're updating all of the parameters which are linked to one variable, because you have the weights of all your, on all your basis functions. And in one step, you want to update them. There's a lot of details here, which I don't want to go into. Uh, it works quite nice for selection. Uh, we used it in, we did a simulation for semi-parametric structured mixed model fits, and that's what is available in the literature. It's the mixed model approach to selecting these things and fitting in, and with a boosting step in it, which performs selection, what one sees is the mean squared error for the prediction. It's, most of the time it's the same, so I have just colored these two things. What one sees is the mean squared error is definitely smaller in all of these cases where you're using boost approximates, uh, boost mixed. 
uh, one thing is for 25 variables, that C is just a signal to noise, to noise ratio which we varied, but it's the same for all of them. Uh, for 25 variables, most packages are unable to fit. So you can wait forever. They will not produce a fit, while in boosting concepts that can be done. One last thing is, uh, that works for additive models. So you're selecting additive uh, structured terms in your predictor. But in the Chimmer data, so you have selected an additive term depending on time, so you have some function. But it's not so satisfying to have just one function because that doesn't modify it with the kit, so you have no slope on it. In, linear, in, in a linear model, it's quite clear. You have an intercept, so you put it up or down, and you vary the slope. Uh, if you want to do it in a non-parametric setting, so you have a non-parametric function which you estimate it and then put some variation on it. That's what we did in the next step without all the details. Uh, yeah, okay, that's it. <coughs> what we were using is a model like that. You have a random intercept, meaning specific for each individual. You have an unknown function which you have to fit, and this unknown function also uh, is allowed to have a slope on it. Because these unknown functions, they are centered around zero. So you can put some slope that makes any function just flatter or steeper. You can do it within a boosting framework by uh, updating uh, correctly and using the alpha from the previous step, so you can fit both of them. Just uh, to show you how it works in the Chima study, that was uh, a data set I got from Le Safre, and he did some parametric fitting to it. There were several covariates, age of mother, uh, gender, education level of mother, and so on. The most interesting thing is really how it varies across age. And what we found is age of children, the basic function you're uh, looking at here is this increase across the years. The age of mother, uh, how does it affect the weight of children? That was a little bit surprising. Uh, the youngest mother was 15 years old, the oldest was 50 years old. And it seems that really young mothers have lower birth weight. And it first it increases, but it seems to be rather stable. With at about 30 or 50, the, weight, the effect on weight is almost the same. Uh, but by allowing that these smooth function can vary in slope, what one gets is fits like that. So you see a lot of these curves for uh, several children and the fit. So some of them, for example, this one, it has just three measurements. Uh, the fitted function is just a very, very uh, flat version of this basic function. So, and just at first sight, it seems like a, a rather well fit for all of these curves, just by modifying, by having one basic function and modifying uh, the steepness of it. Uh, young is working in uh, econometrics, and he was looking at auction data. So in eBay bidding, that was a specific market for palms. And he was first using it at different auctions. Uh, and you have just your bidding prices are increased at some point of time. You have a very irregularly spaced pattern. And you hardly cannot fit uh, some curve to one individual auction. That's hardly impossible. So we tried that approach. Uh, meaning you have, again, a basic function, and this is modified uh, by a random slope, meaning individual for each auction, and that's what was fitted here. <coughs> and that's also, you have, I cannot see it, 
very well from here. But of course, that also fits if you have very, very few data in it. You get a fit, and if you have data in it, it's quite close to the data in this case. We also used it as a prediction device, fit only the first uh, some days, and try to predict the future from that, and that worked rather well. But I think I will stop here. I don't want to talk too long. My focus really was category data. Thanks for listening to me. No, you have, to, you have to estimate your variance parameters. Of course. Right, right. It's, uh, yeah, you have to be careful. Uh, your structural parameters, uh, you're using some refitting with boosting, but you, in each boosting sequence, you have to include one uh, step for fitting your structural parameters of the variance, of course. You have, you have to do that again. Otherwise, it, it would not work. It's a little bit you, uh, harder, in particular, if you want to select uh, to use some sort of AIC in this context, uh, it, it's mu much harder to do. And you have a lot of steps in it, but it worked rather nice. We, we had 100 predictors, smooth predictors, and boosting stops at the right time, so that worked pretty nice. For category data, maybe it's for collapsing of categories, if you, what I'm considering was main effect models. Uh, it gets more harder if you have interaction in it. If you want to select from interactions, of course you can do it. You can put a penalty on both uh, margins of the interaction, but it gets really uh, awful. You can done it. And, and of course, if you select an interaction, you also have to select the main effect too, because you want a hierarchical model. So it's a little bit, you can do it by some engineering work, but I didn't see a, an elegant way to do it up till now. But that's, of course, one point one should look at. Yeah, actually, what we did for the Munich data, we uh, also used some spatial uh, structure in it. But it didn't improve the estimates. Uh, and in th this case, we just tried it for fun because, of course, you want also to uh, put some spatial structure in it in many cases. In this case, I didn't found it so interesting uh, because uh, you want to re really know which districts are different and wherever they lie. And that's really strange. The east and some northern part have exactly the same level because they are rather outside and in a slight direction. So, But th that's an interesting case. Put uh, spatial structure in it. That can be done. Great. Thank you. <laughs>